from Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! Global warming's burning bush. 50,000 protest emails crash the White House computer server. A conversation with a former B-52 spy plane pilot about the U.S. spy plane in China. And we'll talk to Noam Chomsky about President Bush's first months in office. Then, the embattled studios of Russia's only independent TV station as journalists fight a takeover. All that and more coming up on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Welcome to Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. The Senate voted yesterday to slice President Bush's $1.6 trillion tax cut by nearly a third to provide more funds for education and debt reduction, dealing an unexpected and significant blow to the administration's top legislative priority. The Democratic proposal picked up the backing of 49 of the chamber's 50 Democrats, as well as three Republican moderates, who said the president's proposed budget outline devotes too much money toward cutting taxes and not enough toward other domestic priorities. In this piece from the Washington Post, the crash of a V-22 Osprey aircraft that killed four Marines in December was caused by a design flaw that had been known for months but went largely uncorrected. According to pilots interviewed by the paper anonymously, all current or former officers in the Marines' first Osprey squadron They said the design flaw in the aircraft's hydraulic system was compounded by a software glitch that could have been detected by more rigorous testing. But they said they believe both problems slipped by because the Marine Corps wanted to win Pentagon funding for full production of the plane. The production decision was postponed after two Osprey crashes last year killed 23 Marines, raising questions about the safety of the aircraft. All ground beef used in government school lunch programs have to be tested to ensure that that it is free of salmonella. But the Bush administration wants to reverse that federal policy. Officials say the zero-tolerance standard for salmonella in school lunch meals was not scientifically justified. The decision has been hailed by the meat industry and criticized by consumer groups and some legislators who note that the tougher standard had resulted in the rejection of almost 5 million pounds of ground beef during the school year, almost 5% of the total purchase by the USDA. More than 26 million children participate in the school lunch program. Salmonella poisoning in a variety of foods causes 1.4 million illnesses, generally diarrhea and intestinal distress, and 600 deaths a year in the United States. Israeli troops fired from close range early today on a four-car convoy carrying top Palestinian security officials who had just returned from talks with Israel on how to reduce friction after six months of fighting. Mohammed Dalan, one of the three security chiefs, said Israel tried to assassinate him and his colleagues with heavy machine gun fire. His car was struck by seven bullets and a bag with personal belongings that had rested near his feet in the car was also hit. Three of his bodyguards were hurt, including one who was shot in the leg and two who suffered broken limbs when one of the four cars 
overturned. Dalan said no progress was made in the security talks. UN Human Rights Envoy to Burma, Paulo Sergio Pinheiro, met opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi today at the end of a landmark three-day visit to the military-ruled country. Suu Kyi, the leader of the opposition National League for Democracy, has been held under de facto house arrest since September with access to her strictly controlled. The envoy, on the first visit by a senior U.N. human rights official to Burma for five years, was not immediately available for comment. Lori Berenson yesterday refused to condemn the MRTA rebel group that she's accused of aiding. The presiding judge in her case concluded his fourth day of questioning of Lori Berenson in her civilian trial by giving her a chance to speak out against the guerrillas, but Berenson said she was not going to condemn anybody. Berenson conceded she may have unwittingly aided the MRTA rebels, but maintained she is innocent of the charges against her. This news from Havana. A U.S. flag was flown and the American anthem was played as Cuba welcomed eight young Americans to study medicine courtesy of the Cuban government. The six women and two men arrived in Havana late Tuesday and were welcomed yesterday. They are the first Americans to attend a free six-year program to become physicians originally designed for impoverished students in Latin America. President Fidel Castro offered to extend the free medical training to include up to 500 Americans when he met last May with a delegation from the Congressional Black Caucus. And finally, the nation's only statewide public school system was shut down today in Hawaii as nearly 13,000 teachers gave up their pointers for picket signs. In Man, how dare they try to end this beauty? How dare they try to end this beauty? Walking in space. We find the purpose of peace, the beauty of life you can no longer hide. Our eyes are open, our eyes are open, our eyes are open, our eyes are open. What a Piece of Work is Man, from the original London recording of Hair, here on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Well, we turn now to Moscow, in a piece by Scott Peterson and Fred Weir in today's Christian Science Monitor on Russian outcry at loss of independent voice. A standoff is quickly escalating over the fate of NTV, Russia's last independent nationwide television network. At stake, say NTV journalists and their supporters, are not only hard-won press freedoms, but freedom for all Russians. The strategy is to fight, says station news director Gregory Krichevsky. Managers at the station, whose coverage was often critical of the government, were fired on Tuesday in what Krichevsky describes as an illegitimate shareholders meeting called by the state-run natural gas giant Gazprom. Police have declared the growing rally outside NTV's offices in northwest Moscow illegal. A police attempt to enter the building at midday yesterday was repulsed. Secretary of the Union of Russian Journalists said, we are witnessing the final stage of the state monopolization of the media. 
The authorities want to stifle all critical voices and ensure that only official information goes on to the formation of public opinion, he said. He added, therefore, NTV is the last bastion of Russia's free media. As it goes, so goes the country. Again, the piece by Fred Weir and Scott Peterson in today's Christian Science Monitor. And Fred Weir joins us on the telephone right now from Moscow. Welcome to Democracy Now! Welcome, Fred Weir. Hi. Hi. So tell us the latest uh, on what's happening at these uh, at the TV studios of NTV and how significant NTV is in Russia. Well, um, the standard news, and it probably will, will do so for several days, a collective of journalists have basically barricaded them inside cells inside their studio and uh, refused to accept the new management. Uh, and they have rather good legal grounds, and they certainly have uh, a lot of social support. Um, there'll be a rally on Saturday in Moscow, and we'll gauge just how much that uh, social support is um, by the number of, of Russians who turn out to support NTV. But it's it's probably likely to be quite substantial. We're also joined on the phone by Masha Lipmanid, uh, correspondent for Itogi magazine, which is part of the same media group as NTV. Can you talk about just how independent or not NTV is and how significant this uh, protest is? NTV is the only national television uh, network in Russia that is independent of the government, and this uh, puts it in a unique situation of having a huge audience of about 100 million people and at the same time not dependent of the state, or maybe these are the last days when it is not dependent on the state. NTV um, uh, acquired public support and approval back in the days of the first Chechen war in late 94 and 95 when it was the first uh, television channel which covered the, the war as it evolved with all its atrocities coming to people's homes. And that, at that time, it formed the attitude of the Russians to the Chechen war, uh, the indignation over it, uh, which eventually forced President Yeltsin to stop the war. Explain what the natural uh, gas giant Gazprom has to do with all of this, Fred Weir. It's a very complex deal. Um, uh, uh, MTD, uh, its owner, uh, was indebted to uh, Gazprom, which is a gas monopoly controlled by the state. And uh, when the state uh, uh, took a decision, or uh, I think President President Putin took this decision, um, to crack down on this independent channel, um, uh, uh, President Putin's assistants decided uh, to use this weakness of NTV. It's did, and it began to act against NTV, um, pressing on the gas monopoly to demand that all the debts uh, be returned. Um, uh, to show that this was not a fair treatment of the TV channel, although, of course, debt must be paid, one of the state channels owns $100 million to the government, and this uh, this loan has been postponed for a year. The state does not demand uh, that its debt be paid. What about uh, Fred Weir, Ted Turner, and CNN? What role is he playing in this? Well, first of all, I think that this week's crisis was probably triggered uh, by... The, the likelihood that Ted Turner was going to come in, and Gazprom moved very quickly and probably illegally to seize control of management. Um, if, if the reports are true, uh, Turner has bought up some of um, the NTV shares, uh, but he'll be a minority shareholder. And in Russia, that really doesn't matter much. It, it matters 
who controls management. And Gazprom uh, moved to make sure that it's their people who will, will control the management, and then they'll, they'll finesse whatever Turner wants to do. Um, but I suspect that uh, at this stage, unless the takeover can be stopped, uh, Ted Turner um, is pretty much irrelevant. Now, his investment group, uh, Ted Turner's, was reported to include the billionaire financier George Soros? Yes. Um, yes, it's kind of frightening to think of these guys as freedom's cavalry coming over the hill. But all things are rel- relative, and, and in, in Russia, um, it would really be helpful uh, if some outside private investment came in to, to uh, in some sense, perhaps guarantee or, or pose a blockage to the total state takeover of this network. Now, we've been reading for months about uh, Media Most's boss, Vladimir Kuczynski. Can you explain uh, his position in all of this? Uh, ultimately, was has he been driven out of Russia as the government claims corruption? Um, you have to remember that all these guys are, are corrupt uh, in some sense. Everybody who built a business empire in Russia in the 90s did it in dubious ways, uh, uh, because there were no laws, there were there were there was no um, you know standard business practice. What Kuczynski did though was he built the best professional media empire, um, one which uh, for for reasons of his own. Uh, I mean, he he didn't uh, go the route of of kowtowing to the state. He he created quite a professional and um, within the Russian context, uh, objective, critical uh, network. We're talking to Fred Weir, who has a piece in today's Christian Science Monitor. We're also um, talking to his Russian colleague, Masha Lipman, who is a correspondent for Togi Magazine, um, which is part of the same media group as NTV. So at this point, uh, Masha Lipman, uh, Lipman, we are looking at how many people inside the studios, how many journalists, and then um, what are the plans for outside? I understand a massive rally is planned for Saturday. Yeah, it's very hard to tell this point how many people there are inside. Of course, this is a huge television company, and uh, uh, lots of people are employed. Um, we are talking at least hundreds of people, and uh, um, MTV reporters and editors and all other people, cameramen, are now joined by their colleagues, some of them shooting, some of them uh, reporting, some of them just came to show support. Uh, there are also, almost all the time, almost, almost around the clock, there are uh, some of the Duma deputies there, uh, deputies, of course, coming from more liberal factions of the Duma. Talking about the outside, um, I think this is... Uh, um, we, are, we, are, we face here a growing public support, something that Russia has not seen in a long, in a long time. Liberal crowd, people coming to, uh, to protest against uh, a crackdown on freedoms. It first really in defense of MTV and its freedom was held uh, um, on Saturday last week, and uh, whereas about one or 2,000 people were expected by the organizers, um, in fact, some 15,000 came, which was quite a surprise. It looked like uh, the Russian people were disillusioned in liberal values and uh, that um, uh, passivity is the dominant mood among the Russians. But what is going on on MTV now, uh, this uh, um, par- partial strike, anyway, uh, this is definitely a protest uh, that MTV reporters and editors are showing on the screen. 
having canceled all of their programs except news. They resumed the programming now, but uh, for over 24 hours, they were showing nothing but news. I think this inspires a lot of people, and people began to come during the night, staying outside, um, uh, saying that they will be CNN TV should uh, the new um, illegal uh, lawless proprietors come. Uh, just looking at the AP uh, story about what's happening all night at NTV, folks, not to be confused with MTV. We're talking N uh, Nancy TV. Uh, NTV's journalists occupied their offices to prevent the new Gazprom appointed director from entering the building all day. Frazzled employees shuttled between impromptu meetings about NTV's fate and sleeping at their computers. All entertainment programming was canceled. In between newscasts, the network flashed a short statement saying... NTV protested the, quote, illegal takeover. On the bottom left hand of the screen, the familiar NTV logo was stamped over by the word protest in red. Um, so, Fred Weir, what do you expect to happen uh, right now? I mean, we covered extensively the Czech journalists who were protesting uh, uh, the appointment of a person who was inside the station. They made them managing uh, director of the station. Um, the Czech journalists uh, took over. They ended up getting the support of the legislature. And ultimately, they won, saying that their media outlet was being threatened and that free speech was being threatened as well. Um, what about here? What do you expect to be the outcome? I, I'm afraid uh, we wouldn't be seeing any outcome like that in Russia. Um, and you, you should note that in Czechoslovakia, the, the move of replacing the director was technically legal. Uh, and nevertheless, the president and um, the uh, uh, parliament no, realized that there was a greater social interest at stake here. And uh, society mobilized, and the president intervened, I believe, in that case, uh, on the side of the journalists. In, in Russia, you w- wouldn't see um, political power intervening, and in fact, it's quite the opposite. Political power is manipulating these events, orchestrating them uh, to ensure that uh, uh, NTV's independence dies. Um, the, the last hope really is that um, uh, public opinion will mobilize that uh, the demonstrations will be large, uh, that the world will take an interest and perhaps force uh, uh, Gazprom to back off. But that, I must say, seems very unlikely. And Amasha Lipman is a Russian journalist who is part of the whole NTV conglomerate. Your final words. Um, it is extremely important what will happen to NTV. I'm not very optimistic. I agree that public support is a main factor here. But what is certainly true is that uh, local authorities all over Russia are now looking at what is going on at NTV and waiting whether the uh, the government uh, via uh, state monopoly Gazprom will be able to stifle the free word and the free voice there or not. If uh, the authorities succeed, this will be a very bad signal seeing to what is left of independent press in the regions. The situation there has never been very good, uh, and uh, it will grow much, much worse. This will be a go-ahead to anyone who wants to suppress his local press, his local television stations. Uh, I'm thinking also about my own magazine uh, and, uh, and uh, people who work here. We're 70 people, and uh, we very much believe uh, uh, from uh, what goes on now that this may be our last issue this week. 
Well, I want to thank you very much for being with us as we continue to report on the embattled studios of NTV and uh, the extended, the related magazines like yours, Itogi. Thanks for being with us. Masha Lipman, uh, correspondent for Itogi Magazine, part of the same media group as NTV. Also, Fred Weir with us, an independent uh, reporter in uh, Moscow, uh, also a correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. His piece appears in today's edition. You're listening to Democracy Now! When we return, we're going to take a look at countries resisting President Bush's harder line. We'll be speaking with Noam Chomsky. You're listening to Democracy Now! Stay with us. You're listening to Democracy Now!, the exception to the rulers. I'm Amy Goodman. Uh, This was a quote in an article in Agence France Press yesterday. Sometimes I get up in the morning and wonder who we're going to offend today, Uh, so said a senior diplomat from the U.S. State Department. Those words are not surprising. Just two months into his term, President George W. Bush and his administration have succeeded in angering nearly every country in the world on issues ranging from aggression of U.S. military to the privileging of U.S. business interests over the hundred countries concerned about global warming. The foreign policy debacle began on President Bush's first day in office when he withdrew federal funding for international women's clinics that provide information on abortions, which angered many European countries. But far more serious has been the Bush administration's rapid pursuit of a national missile defense system, which Russia, China, and European Union strongly oppose. Then there was the espionage row with Russia that'll see 100 U.S. and Russian diplomats expelled from the two countries by summer. In March, Bush stunned a longtime Asia-Pacific ally, South Korea, when he essentially repudiated peacemaking efforts with North Korea. Around the same time, a nuclear-powered submarine surfaced under a Japanese training vessel, killing nine people on board, including four high school students. And just a few days ago, relations with Japan were further strained when a U.S. nuclear submarine made an unannounced port call in Japan. The incident was the first-ever violation of a pact that requires U.S. military authorities to give 24-hour advance notice before the arrival of a nuclear-powered sub in a Japanese port. Last week, President Bush reversed a campaign pledge and announced that the U.S. would not abide by the Kyoto Protocol, the treaty on global warming that over 100 countries signed in Japan in 97. Countries around the world reacted with outrage. 
And now tensions with China have escalated over the collision of a U.S. spy plane with a Chinese fighter jet off China's coast. China has demanded both an apology and an end to U.S. surveillance flights off China's coast. But Secretary of State Colin Powell says that Washington has no intention of apologizing, and a Pentagon spokesperson says the U.S. is unlikely to stop the flights. To assess all of this, we turn to Noam Chomsky. Uh, Noam Chomsky, well-known political analyst, author, professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Noam. It's good to have you with us. Glad to be here again. Um, well, the front page of the Christian Science Monitor says nations resist Bush's harder line. Is it a harder line? Yeah, it's a harder line, but uh, uh, the comparative is uh, accurate. It's been hard for a long time. Uh, it's true that this is an escalation of the hard line. It's a move towards uh, a more uh, intense commitment to what, uh, even the mainstream conservatives like foreign affairs are calling uh, the new sovereignism, the uh, insistence of the United States on maintaining uh, on uh, uh, maintaining its own sovereign rights to an extreme extent. And that has been uh, irritating the world for a long time. Uh, it's uh, escalated in the last uh, couple of months, exactly as you say, but uh, uh, remember that it's worth remembering that uh, uh, the world mo outside of uh, Europe, uh, there was extreme hostility to uh, uh, the, the U.S.-British uh, you know, NATO bombing of um, Serbia last year. The, uh, uh, it caused enormous anger all over the world. Uh, the, what they, what's called the so-called right of humanitarian intervention was described in most of the world as uh, just a reversion to old-fashioned uh, gunboat diplomacy under moralistic guise. Uh, the uh, sa uh, sanctions and bombing of uh, uh, Iraq are, uh, 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 most, again, most of the world is extremely hostile to that, including the regional powers. Uh, you go back, uh, you know, five, six or seven years, uh, uh, Japan, uh, polls in Japan, uh, indicated that uh, the population regarded the United, the United States as the major threat that they faced. Uh, and in fact, it's been noted again by you know, conservative strategic analysts, people like uh, Samuel Huntington, that uh, the unilateralism, the uh, very aggressive unilateralism of the United States in the last decade has uh, caused much of the world, he indicates most of the world, uh, to regard the United States as the uh, primary threat uh, to their uh, uh, existence, uh, his words. But this is indeed an escalation, but it's an escalation of policies that uh, have been in place. It, it was, uh, the bombing of uh, Yugoslavia was kind of striking. I mean, there was almost no reporting here of the world reaction, uh, but the world reaction was extremely hostile. And just on these grounds, uh, these guys are out of control. You have uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Rumsfeld, whose baby is the National Missile Defense. Would you say that a lot of this is actually deliberately provocative to then justify, I mean, going after uh, North Korea and uh, not supporting the sunshine policy of South Korea, reconciliation with North Korea, um, uh, China saying we're going to stand firm and not apologize um, for the U.S. spy plane. 
um, uh, of course, the global warming treaty and um, what's going on with Japan right now. Would you say it's deliberately provocative well, it, and it, Russia the right, getting right. rid of the 50 diplomats? Right. Uh, well, uh, I, I think we have to separate those issues a little. On the, on the global warming, uh, this is a case in which the United States has caused real fury in Europe. Uh, in the other cases, it was the world outside of Europe that was uh, angered and often infuriated. So, for example, the, the bombing in Serbia. Uh, but Europe sort of went along. Uh, in the case of the global warming, uh, you take a look at the European press. The, they're uh, very upset about it and regard this as U.S. unilateralism gone gone mad. I mean, to an extent that it might uh, you know, destroy the uh, destroy the a livable environment for future generations. And the same on the national missile defense. Uh, uh, there's almost universal opposition to that. Uh, Europe opposed uh, the. the you know the the South, so-called, is opposed strongly. It's 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 regarded by just about everyone as in the only way it can be regarded as a, essentially a first strike weapon, uh, which is going to lead to proliferation. Uh, in fact, even U.S. intelligence services have been very clear about this. They have pointed out right through the Clinton years that this proposal will uh, ne- almost necessarily cause uh, potential adversaries uh, or victims depending on how you look at it, uh, to uh, uh, increase their own uh, uh, forms of weapons of mass destruction uh, in order to defend themselves uh, against what is can only be perceived as a first-strike weapon. Uh, so uh, as on, on the case of North Korea, well, you know, I'm not inside Rumsfeld's mind, but it's very hard to interpret what they did as anything but uh, a conscious effort to provoke a conflict which will justify the national missile defense. They've been keying it to the North Korean threat. If the North Korean threat disappears through negotiation, uh, what's going to be the uh, justification for this uh, mad program? Uh, And it's awfully hard to interpret what they did, uh, intensifying conflict with North Korea and uh, undermining South Korean efforts to uh, negotiate. It's difficult to interpret it as anything but an effort to ensure that the threat, the alleged threat, uh, uh, remains so that they can move ahead with this program that they're very much committed to. And what about uh, Bush uh, saying he won't pursue the same sort of active diplomacy, if you can call it that, of uh, President Clinton when it comes to, say, Northern Ireland or the Middle East? Do you think this will improve the world or not? Well... In the case of Northern Ireland, I think that the Clinton initiatives uh, had some uh, beneficial effects. Uh, In the case of the Middle East, it's a very mixed story. I mean, what he was actually pushing for was, uh, and uh, trying to implement, was a kind of uh, Bantustan settlement that maybe it could have led to peace, and just as the South Africa's Bantustans could have led to peace if the population had accepted them. But it was uh, um, it was a, a persistence of the long-term U.S. rejectionist policy, which has refused to accept uh, Palestinian national rights as being uh, and uh, any meaningful form of independence. Uh, I regard Clinton's initiatives there as being uh, harmful from the start, uh, which is not to say that they didn't contribute to peace, but after all, peace in itself is no great value. You know, I mean, Hitler wanted peace, too. The question is, what kind of peace? 
Uh, and this was a piece which uh, led to uh, oppression, violence, degradation, uh, destruction of uh, meaningful Palestinian existence, and cantonization of the territories. Not, not very impressive. Uh, the uh, uh, when, the, when the Bush administration says it's going to back off a little, uh, what I think they mean is uh, that they, and, w- and they've made it very clear, in fact, that their intention uh, is uh, not to, uh, uh, kind of a version of the Powell Doctrine, uh, not to become involved uh, in international affairs unless they enter with massive force. That's the essence of the Powell Doctrine. Don't do anything unless you're going to come in with massive violence. Now, of course, no country can live up to that condition, but there will be presumably a tendency in that direction. Keep away unless you come in with with great violence. Uh, and the negotiating efforts, of course, are not like that. That does not, even if one dislikes the negotiating efforts, as I did in the case of the Middle East, a shift to this policy does not augur very well. Finally, and, and the world's frightened about it, very frightened. Finally, let's end on the issue of oil with the ascendancy of the oligarchy of Bush and, uh, and uh, Cheney, uh, former head of Halliburton, the largest oil services corporation in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, they are, yeah, that could have many effects. For example, one effect it might have uh, is uh, terminating the um, dual containment policy of uh, the Clinton administration, the core of Clinton's a policy towards the Middle East was what they called dual containment, you know, sort of uh, marginalizing uh, and, uh, Iran and Iraq. Uh, the oil industry is not in favor of that. In fact, uh, Cheney himself has been, uh, his company has been involved in all sorts of devious uh, manipulations with offshore branches and so on that have been bringing in Iraqi and Iranian oil. Uh, and it's conceivable that they may... Uh, push in that direction. I mean, it's, it's worth remembering also in this China case that all the way back there has been a kind of a, a split, so a split that goes on for a long time between uh, business interests. Uh, they may be very reactionary, but business interests that want to enter into uh, business relations uh, with uh, designated enemies uh, and to integrate them into the U.S. system uh, by the force of uh, U.S. economic power. And they have often been in conflict with more militaristic, uh, chauvinistic elements which wanted conflict, uh, both for internal social control and to build up the military system and so on. And these uh, divisions don't, uh, like, for example, in the 1950s, uh, this was, there was a conflict of this sort over how to deal with China. Uh, uh, the sort of more hawkish ones won out. Uh, but remember, it was after all Nixon who shifted to the other direction, uh, while the Kennedy intellectuals were among the most hawkish. Uh, it doesn't break up very clearly on uh, you know, party lines or so-called uh, liberal conservative lines. Uh, they're just different concentrations of interests, and they'll pursue their own course uh, as they see it for tactical reasons. I mean, on the other hand, we can be sh- sure that, uh, in fact, you don't even, not even a guess, that the uh, Bush commitment to the um, Bush is virtually a creature of the energy industry. Uh, they'll do everything possible to increase their profits, to undermine environmental regulations, and so on. Uh, but that's just a special case of the general policy of uh, uh, trying to maximize benefits for the rich and hoping you can control everyone else somehow. Well, Noam, thanks very much for being with us. Okay, good to be with you.
Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, well-known political analyst uh, and author of many books. And this uh, somewhat humorous note, front page of the Wall Street Journal, the Pentagon canceled an expected announcement that China would continue to make some of the Black Berets most Army troops are to begin wearing. Uh, this in light of what's going on over the U.S. spy plane. But just what is going on, Secretary of State Colin Powell um, expressed regret over the disappearance of the Chinese pilot whose fighter jet collided with a U.S. Navy surveillance plane Sunday uh, and urged a dialogue about what caused the collision but refused to apologize um, U.S. officials are accusing China of examining the plane, despite insisting they have no right to do so. China says it has every right to examine the plane as it entered its airspace without permission. The Pentagon itself has often rejected similar appeals from other countries. For example, when a defecting Soviet pilot flew a fighter jet to Japan in 1976, American intelligence officials, despite Soviet protests, spent nine weeks taking it apart before sending the plane back to Moscow in packing crates. Well, we're joined on the telephone right now by Dale Brown, who is a former Air Force captain. He flew a B-52 on, a spy, on spy missions, uh, and he wrote yesterday a piece in the Los Angeles Times saying, if tables were turned, we do the same. Uh, can you talk about this, just what the U.S. Uh, is demanding of uh, the Chinese to return the crew and to return the plane unscathed? Hi, good morning. It's Absolutely. good to have you with the, us. The, uh, our, main, uh, our main focus, obviously, is to get the crew back and, uh, and, and to make sure they're safe. The, uh, to the Chinese, of course, have a, have a much different agenda. They want to keep the, uh, to the crew as long as possible. They have, they have great propaganda value. They have great intelligence value, so uh, so they're going to try to hang on to them as long as possible. The other uh, military has a much greater influence on uh, on foreign affairs in China than they do in the West. So uh, so so we can expect this to be a long and very protracted uh, uh, situation right now. There's uh, there's been some rumors that the crew could be returned as early as tomorrow. I really don't believe it. I think the the uh, to the Chinese haven't uh, haven't used every every avenue or, or exploited every every possibility as far as the crew, so we can expect them to stay there for for several weeks at least. The aircraft is a different matter. the The aircraft will probably never leave Hainan Island. The uh, I can't imagine the uh, to the Chinese allowing any uh, any Navy engineers or any Navy uh, maintenance men back on the island to fix the aircraft and then fly it out. Uh, they will indeed go over that aircraft piece by piece. They'll examine every every piece of equipment, every every manual, every uh, every tech order, every scrap of paper on that airplane for any intelligence value. What if a super secret Chinese plane unexpectedly landed on Guam or Hawaii? Well, we would do exactly what the Chinese are doing. The the uh, our our major concern. If I was the base commander. My major concern is what what does this aircraft have on board? Is it really a spy plane, or is it a terrorist? Is it a saboteur? Uh, so I would want so I would isolate the aircraft, which is exactly what the Chinese have done. They've they've uh, they parked it in a, all by itself in a on a parking ramp as far as possible away from the main part of the base in case it does have 
some sort of a weapon on it. And, and I would take the crew off. I would isolate the crew, uh, each in individual rooms, uh, incommunicado from each other. Uh, I, would, uh, I would even restrain them. I would, uh, I, I, would, uh, I would place them under custody. And then I would go over the aircraft bit by bit to make sure that there are... My next concern would be the, to the safety of the, uh, of the crew on board. As an American, as a Westerner, my first concern would be whether or not the, uh, to any member of the crew wants to defect. That could be the reason why the aircraft is there, because the flight crew decided to, to, uh, to take the aircraft and defect to the United States. So I would, uh, I would isolate them, and I would interrogate each and every one of them very carefully, possibly even not with an, not with an intelligence officer, but I would uh, perhaps use a physician a, a doctor or a nurse trained in intelligence procedures to interrogate the crew and then uh, find out whether or not anybody wants to defect. If not, then I would leave them isolated at least for, for a few days and then slowly uh, bring the crew back together again. But starting with, uh, with matching up just, uh, just perhaps two or three persons at a time same uh, same age and same rank, so they so they can't rebuild their 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 internal chain of command, and there's uh, there's there's relatively less military discipline involved. And then, of course, whatever room I would have them in, I'd have them bug for to uh, to listen in on any intelligence value, any intelligence things that they might be talking about together. Discipline eventually breaks down if you if you create the right situation. To, uh, to do it, and if you have if you have a bunch of uh, of, uh, of young men in the same room, they'll eventually start talking, and, and you hope that they'll talk about something that has intelligence value to it. And you're saying you don't want the older military men in with the younger ones because they would educate the younger troops about how to behave in enemy custody. At the very yes, at the very least, they would tell the the uh, to the younger guys to shut up. Uh, at the to, at the very at the very most, they would educate them very, very carefully on about how you deal with the enemy, and that in, that includes dealing with any person that that comes in the room, whether or not it's a high-ranking officer or somebody somebody cleaning up the food trays. Uh, they uh, they would educate them about their experiences, about uh, about dealing with the enemy, about dealing with intelligence officers, about. Uh, about reacting to to pieces of paper put in front of them, uh, of course, educating them on the basics. Never sign anything, never agree to anything, never make any statements on a on a tape recorder. So they would uh, they would reestablish military discipline very very quickly, and you want to avoid that. You want to control the uh, to the situation as much as possible. You want to control the environment, uh, not necessarily use uh, to use hardcore intelligence. Uh, interrogation procedures. You certainly wouldn't use drugs. You wouldn't need to, but but you could control their their environment. You would start the questioning early in the morning, late at night. You know, different times during the day. Try to disrupt their internal clocks, so they're so they're disorientated, at least mentally disorientated. They don't know what what time it is. Tricks like that. You would uh, you would uh, perhaps try to get them to sign something. And then make them realize that that they may have done something wrong, which demoralizes them, which uh, which makes them feel like, well, I, okay, I've done this already, so so what else can I do wrong? You know, 
So that type of thing. So here you are, uh, Dale Brown, a former Air Force captain. You flew a B-52 on spy missions, and you're saying you wouldn't do anything different than the Chinese are doing right now with the U.S. spy plane that went down, which, by the way, as you point out, this EP-3 spy plane now in Chinese hands is several generations more sophisticated than anything in China. Right, absolutely. Now, the only difference between between the way China will handle this and the way the other West, the United States, would handle this is in the disposition of the crew. I would, uh, and the reason for that is that the the uh, to the government, the diplomats have much more influence in the West than they do in the East. The the other uh, military controls almost every aspect of life in uh, in the East in general, and especially in China. So so whatever the military says in this situation goes. If the military wants three months to examine the aircraft and to interrogate the crew, they'll get it, more than likely. Um, you know, the West has very little influence about what happens in, uh, in, in politics and in the military in the East. We, we can't really influence what, what goes on in China. We have no leverage over there right now. So whatever the military wants as far as this, this incident, uh, uh, they'll get. And the military has, uh, has great influence and the uh, to the civilian leadership in China pretty much follows the uh, the military lead. Well, so, uh, uh, so that that situation would be different than in the West. Well, Dale Brown, I want to thank you very much for being with us again. Dale Brown is a a, a former Air Force captain, flew B fifty two on spy missions, and is author of the forthcoming book Warrior Class. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to Democracy Now! When we return, um, we'll look at another of President Bush's policies, saying that they will not follow the Kyoto Protocol, and we'll look at what this means with people around the world. Stay with us. You're listening to Democracy Now!, Free Speech Radio. I'm Amy Goodman. Well, the European Parliament today is set to condemn the United States' withdrawal from the Kyoto Protocol on global warming as appalling and provocative and threatening climate disaster. Uh, just a week ago, uh, President Bush uh, reversed a campaign pledge and announced that the U.S. would not abide by the Kyoto Protocol, the Treaty on Global Warming that over 100 countries signed in Japan of 1997. Countries around the world reacted with outrage. Uh, in fact, here in the United States, a European delegation 
uh, came to the United States uh, to an environmental commissioner, said the U.S. should be reduced to the role of a spectator at future environmental meetings and that the 15-nation EU European Union would now lead the process to finalize the terms of the Kyoto Treaty with other countries. A delegation left for its own talks in Washington on the Kyoto Protocol with the Japanese Environment Minister lobbying her counterparts from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Norway. The five ministers agreed in a telephone conference jointly to urge the U.S. to reconsider its decision to abandon the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, we are going to go first to Rhoda Verheyen, who is with Friends of the Earth Europe, uh, the climate change campaigner for that group. She speaks to us from Hamburg. Welcome to Democracy Now! What's been your response to President Bush's reversal? Hi, Amy. Thank you for putting me on the program. Well, our response from Europe is basically um, giving a voice to the outrage that you just described. And what we've launched on March the 30th, which is the day when Bush announced his decision to um, pull out of the treaty, is an email campaign, a massive email campaign, which we called Flood Bush. And we are now receiving about 10,000 emails per day, which are all going to the White House um, server. And it gives people the opportunity to um, raise their concerns with President Bush, to protest against the decision of the United States, the major polluter with greenhouse gases in the world, to pull out of this global agreement. And um, up to now, we have about 70,000 people around the world um, writing to the president about their um, disappointment and outrage about this decision. So that's what, what we've done, and we'll continue with this campaign until hopefully um, the United States will see the light or the president will see the light and come back to the negotiation table. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're urging the EU and its partners in New Zealand, Canada, Japan, etc., to go, to go ahead alone without the U.S., um, and we're urging the U.S. to stay at home. If they don't want to negotiate about the Kyoto Protocol, stay at home in July, do not come to Bonn, and let the other nations get on with it. Did you say you crashed the uh, White House computer server with all the emails? Yes, we've had reports that we crashed the White House computer server twice. Um, those have not been confirmed, obviously, but we're pretty certain that that is very possible because of the fact that um, computer systems like that only have a limited capacity for emails per second. And uh, there were peak times where the server received about 1,000 emails per second. We're also joined on the telephone by Steve Sawyer, who's the climate campaigner for Greenpeace International in Amsterdam. Um, can you uh, talk about reactions from different countries, Steve Sawyer? Yeah, well, we've been uh, flooded with responses uh, from, as Rhoda said, from Japan, Canada, from church organizations, from the opposition in Australia, which is likely to enter into government soon, of course, from the European Union, from people around the South Pacific um, from the European Parliament itself and the Green Group, uh, which last week called for a boycott of American oil companies, uh, from Brazil and indeed from New Zealand. Uh, today we're launching an initiative, Greenpeace is launching an initiative calling upon the top 100 U.S. companies to declare their positions on uh, climate change, whether or not they support uh, the ratification of the Kyoto Protocol or whether they support President Bush. And we're giving them a week to reply because uh, the American people can register their opinions at the ballot box, but for the rest of the world, who are all shocked at, at what President Bush has done, we can uh, register our, our opinions via the marketplace. Um, and from the mail and phone calls that we've been receiving, it's clear that the public wants to do just that, and we want to make sure they make the right choices. Now, explain for a minute, um, 
the U.S. Senate probably would not have ratified uh, the Kyoto Treaty, the Kyoto Protocol. Is that right? So what exactly has Bush done except sort of adamantly proclaim that? Well, the U.S. Senate uh, under Bill Clinton certainly would not have, and they made that clear in 1995. But uh, several things have, in 1997 rather, several things have changed since then. One, there's been an election, and there's a lot more uh, pro-environmental senators in in place now than there were at that time. There are important elections coming up in a couple of, well, not only about 18 months now, where we expect both the House and the Senate to change even further in direction in response to the growing public outcry. I mean, we've seen the Time CNN poll over the weekend that fully two-thirds of American people want to see some action on climate change. That just wasn't the case four years ago, and we only expect that those numbers would increase. I mean, our partner organization in the U.S., Friends of the Earth U.S., has um, done a lot of grassroots work on this issue. And what we see is an increasingly aware public in the United States that want action. We see a lot of companies in the U.S. that actually do want to participate in this global climate change regime and who are also outraged by this decision. And that's why we were hopeful and we remain to be hopeful that um, the U.S. Senate will ratify this, this protocol at some point. And that's why Bush's decision to pull out of the negotiation and to not even, you know, to basically declare this treaty dead, which is something that he can't do, um, is, is, is so outrageous. Can you explain for a minute, we should back up, when we talk about the Kyoto Protocol in this mm -hmm. country, there isn't a lot of attention to it. So I don't know if people are very clear on exactly uh, what, the, uh, what exactly it says. Well, um, what the Kyoto Protocol does is basically it sets a timetable for nations around the world, industrialized nations such as the U.S., Canada, Australia, and the whole of the EU and other countries to reduce their emissions from greenhouse gases, um, which is mainly carbon dioxide, but also me methane and other gases. And it sets percentage points um, leveled against the 1990 emissions of those countries, and it obliges them to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions to protect the global climate. And if the U.S. pulls out of this treaty now, it has no obligation to reduce these greenhouse gases and basically um, jeopardizes the future of the entire planet with that decision. And we should also remember that uh, President Bush's father uh, signed the uh, Framework Convention on Correct. Climate Change, of which the yeah. Kyoto Protocol is a subsidiary agreement, signed at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. And the U.S. Senate has ratified that agreement, even though it has not uh, taken up the Kyoto Protocol, and under the Framework Convention, they are obliged to reduce greenhouse gases to prevent dangerous climate change. And the Kyoto Protocol is only the first step in what needs to be done. I mean, scientists agree that uh, we need to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and greenhouse gas emissions by 50, 60, 70, or 80 percent over the course of the next uh, half a century. Steve Sawyer, uh, you're with Greenpeace. Can you briefly describe what's happening off the coast of Scotland right now with the Greenpeace occupation of the Conoco oil rig, why they're doing it, what's happening? We have been uh, opposing the expansion of the oil industry in all parts of the world for uh, five, six years now, uh, simply because uh, we need to, as a society, move away from a dependence on fossil fuels. And as a famous British politician once said, when you find yourself in a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging. Um, the planet cannot afford to burn the oil that we've already discovered and that we already have in reserves. So the hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars spent on new exploration is money that will ultimately be wasted and would be much better spent uh, 
<clears throat> in terms in developing the technologies and the infrastructure needed for the energy transition that is going to come. Um, lastly, you talk about this letter that's just being released to the press today, the letter to U.S. corporations. So it's a little ironic that you'd have the U.S. corporations putting pressure on uh, Bush to uh, endorse the Kyoto Treaty and to go back to his campaign pledge. Um, uh, you have uh, shareholder resolutions around the country over the last few years po po forcing these corporations to pull out of the global climate change coalition that was fighting Kyoto, and a number of the companies did. Do you really think there'll be a force to pressure Bush the other way now? Well, um, we hope to make them nail their colors to the mass, so to speak. Obviously, we don't expect Exxon and Mobil and Texaco and Chevron to do a turn on this overnight, but uh, we didn't expect BP and Shell and uh, Total Alfina and other companies to do that a few years ago. But eventually, um, you know, they rely on the people who buy their gasoline and buy their products. And if those people can speak with a strong enough voice, yes, eventually they will change. Rhoda Verheyen, we have just 30 seconds. What are you encouraging people to do in the United States? I think people should voice their concern with the president and at all opportunities with Republican senators that they can get a hold of, um, write letters, write emails, and, um, and try and get a hold of the press and the media. Basically, um, give a voice to their concerns. Climate change will affect us all. It will affect our children. It will kill millions of people if we don't put a stop to it. And that's the duty of the American president now and not later. What's your website at Friends of the Earth? It's www. Friends of the Earth Europe, foeeurope.org. And uh, Steve Sawyer, Greenpeace's? Uh, www.greenpeace.org. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. Steve Sawyer in Amsterdam for Greenpeace and Rhoda Verheyen uh, for Friends of the Earth, speaking to us from Hamburg. And that does it for today's show. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about horse meat, the increased demand for horse meat in the United States and Europe. If you'd like to order a cassette copy of the show, 1-800-735-0230 is the number to call. Our email address is mail at democracynow.org. That's mail at democracynow.org. Our producers are Chris Abrams and Terry Allen. Our engineer is Anthony Sloan. Our technical director is Errol Maitland. From the embattled studios of WBAI, from the studios of The Band and The Fired, from the studios of you, our listeners, I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening to another edition of Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now!
I'm Mark Cooper, contributing editor of The Nation.